Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, which is an advocacy-based group providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture around the world from crisis to comfort. Uh, I've personally been on this journey for 30 years with my mom, who just recently passed away, and I am a firm believer we need to have a conversation. We need to start talking about this and uh, educating people and getting them comfortable having the conversation. And by joining forces and just sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations that we have here on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio and on our blog and on the Dementia Chats webinars and even when I do presentations, um, you know, it really can shift things in everyday life. It can help remove the stigmas that are attached to memory loss that just trap not only the person that's diagnosed, but their families and their loved ones, and we can give them purpose back. We can be inclusive. And so it's it's just so important uh, to have this conversation. And I know that collaboratively we're really making an impact because we were honored by Dr. Oz and ShareCare as the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's disease. And I have to say I was kind of shocked uh, when we got that award Um, But again, it just goes to show how important this is to all of you. You're taking, you know, just those few seconds to go ahead and like the program, share it with your friends on Facebook, share it with your Google circle, share it with people on your LinkedIn groups. You never know who needs this information. And the more we push it out there, the more comfortable we will make people feeling tap, uh, in order to tap into into um, this critical, critical conversation about dementia. Um, here on the program, you know, I love to interview everybody. So um, you could be our next guest. So feel free to reach out to me if you um, have a story you want to share. Maybe you're someone who just got diagnosed with dementia. Maybe you've been living with it for many years. You could be a family member or a loved one caring for somebody who's been on the journey or is still on the journey. Maybe you're a researcher. Um, Maybe you've written songs or books. Uh, maybe you have divided, uh, developed a product, a service, or a tool to help others. 
we want to hear from everyone because we know this uh, this cannot be one voice that we put out there. Um, there's a common saying that you know once you've seen one person with Alzheimer's, you've seen one person with Alzheimer's, but it goes further than that. Um, not only is each person who's diagnosed a different individual, but so are their care partners. So are their environments in which they they live and work and um, find entertainment. And all of that has to be taken into, into consideration. So I would really encourage you to join the conversation today. We would love to have you participate. You can do that a couple of different ways. One, you can call in live to the show, and that number is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. And if you're listening via your computer, um, you can just click on that number right over the pictures and um, and go ahead and connect via, via Skype. Um, or you can always use a landline. You can always... Uh, to utilize the chat box because I will be monitoring that. So before we get started, I just like to give some shout outs to some of my favorite organizations because when I, you know, fell into this this um, whole mess, and I'll call it a mess because uh, I don't think it's anything anyone picks. Um, 30 years ago, I didn't know who to call. I didn't know where to go. And so I really believe in these companies. Um, the first organization I'm going to mention is Alzheimer's Disease International, and they are the organization of all Alzheimer's associations around the world. And so no matter where you are, you'll you'll be able to find out who is closest to you. Plus, they are loaded with great information. The world statistics are absolutely fascinating, plus many resources. The Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation, another absolutely fabulous organization. They have been around over 20 years, and they really focus on holistic measures. And I know for myself, I've found you know, meditation and yoga and things like that to be really helpful um, as a care partner, um, but they can incorporate this for people with the disease as well. They're about reducing stress, eating right, exercising, um, and so forth. So um, they have great educational programs and resources as well there. <clears throat> the Lewy Body Dementia Association um, is really important because it, you know, they have a different system uh, symptoms versus just uh, somebody with Alzheimer's. There's so many different types of dementia, so it's important that if you have Lewy Body, that you connect with this particular organization because they really understand and can guide you and support you with your symptoms. Same with the Association for the Frontal Temporal Degeneration. Um, It's a whole different type of disease. Even though there are similarities, um, there are definitely some differences and you're going to want to be able to talk with people who um, are dealing with the same same issues. Um, the National Aphasia Association is wonderful because they are all about speech, and a lot of times people have trouble with their speech, and they will be able to give you support there. The Alzheimer's Studies Group has a couple of trials out, and um, I would highly recommend that you check uh, them out. One is their TAU trial. 
and another is for frontal temporal lobe, uh, which is just launching. So go to the Alzheimer's studies.com to find them or you can go to the Alzheimer's team on Facebook for them and then um, some things that I think are really important too are just are kind of recreational you know how do we how do we continue to click how do we continue to engage and music first with coral health does a great great job because they basically can come up with music prescriptions that allow us to find the music that is helpful for a person with dementia. Now, it's not just for dementia. It's for any of us. Um, They can do this for children, um, whatever. But we can find music that will pick us up, that will put us to sleep, that will help us eat, that will calm us down. Um, So check out Choral Health. Um, Music First is actually an app you can get on your phone. And then Puzzle With Me has just designed some fabulous puzzles Um, more age-appropriate, bigger in size, and fewer pieces, as well as Jiminy Wicket, which is a program um, that is, uh, it's a croquet program that is uh, intergenerational that matches up schools with memory units um, to play croquet on a one-on-one, and it's absolutely fascinating because it's also educational, um, as well as a lot of fun. James talks about uh, developing smiles and creating smiles um, per minute there. So, again, um, lots of great resources. I'm just highlighting a few but I do think that they're important. And if you've got some, again, feel free to call in and let us know about them. Um, and I will pull you in, you know, as we go through uh, kind of breaks in the conversation. But let me go ahead and introduce our first guest here. Tanya Ward Goodman uh, grew up at the Tinkertown Museum, which was a roadside attraction built by her father, Ross Ward, and it was in the mountains of New Mexico. She uh, attended the Northwestern University, and she currently lives in Los Angeles, California, with her husband and two children. She has been um, writing and has been published in the Los Angeles Times, a Cup for Comfort series, and she's done an anthology, My Teacher is My Hero. Um She's done some things with Online at Brain and Child Magazine, The Huffington Post, um, Literary Mama, and she has just uh, launched this memoir, Leaving Tinkertown. And in 2008, it was the winner of the Southwest Writers Conference Storytellers Award. And shes it, it's just a very, very interesting um, story about about her family and, and dementia. So I want to welcome Tanya to the program. How are you doing today, Tanya? I'm very well, Lori. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really excited about having you um, here. Your book is is um, not the typical family story by by any stretch. And no. why don't why don't we start out with having you um, just give us a little brief background on Tinkertown? I mentioned that it was a museum, but give us a little bit more insight to Tinkertown. Well, Tinkertown is um, a museum in the mountains outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, my father made it. it um, he kind of always wanted to have a roadside attraction. And um, so it is a collection that 
of carnival art. It's um, a wood-carved animated miniature western town that he made and um, created all the buildings and wood-carved all the people. Um, he has his uh, miniature circus that he built and um, wood-carved and you know, built the tent and carved all the wagons, and, and that all is animated as well. And then it's just tons of collections. He he was a carnival show painter, and he traveled all around the country painting for the carnival, and he would just pick up all these wonderful antiques, and he always had an interest in circuses in the Old West. So there's um, circus antiques and mining lamps and a collection of ice tongs and a I, there's, I think, 200 wedding cake couples from all over the country. Um, he just was sort of interested in everything, and eventually he gathered it all together and started building rooms in our backyard and and put everything into the museum and then surrounded the whole place with walls made out of bottles and cement. It's really like nothing else. <laughs> wow. You know, and I look at his picture, and every time I look at his picture, he just reminds me of Keith Urban for for, for whatever reason. <laughs> when I when I look at him, he just looks like he, he just this kind soul and just um, interesting and kind of full of life. You know? Oh my gosh, and, he was yes, very very full of life. <laughs> yeah, and I I love the pictures that you've got in here because it just it I mean it just shows. Um, that personality, and I mean, it, it shows his skill set and family. Um, it, it's a very, it's very fun and very interesting just to be able to to see the the photos in and of themselves. There, I am wondering if you can tell us a little bit um, about kind of you know your journey, you know, um, and and your dad. Um, with his dementia, um, I know it was kind of a complicated twist through the years and stuff. Um, but can you give us a little a little background on you know when when you started noticing things or when it was starting to be talked about at all? Absolutely, he was um, uh, 57 when he was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's, um, and I had just turned 30, and I was really um, you know, surprised, and I hadn't been living at home, and so I um, I would visit over the holidays or, you know, here and there, and I would sort of see little things that didn't seem 100% like my dad, but mm-hmm. he was always very eccentric, and, um, you know, you never really knew what he was going to do, and so it kind of seemed, well, it's possible that he's still, like, that this is sort of normal, um, but when I went home for the holidays, um, I think it was right before I turned 30, uh, he decided to come back with me to Los Angeles, and I had driven home, and he said, I'm going to drive back to you with you, and we're going to have this great road trip, and we'd taken tons of road trips when I was a kid, and um, that was those were some of my most favorite memories, and so we, um, you know, got in the car to come back to Los Angeles together, and he was going to hang out, and we were going to go to museums and see Knott's Berry Farm. He loves Knott's Berry Farm. And, like, um, <laughs> and uh, as soon as we got in the car, I really started to notice things that just didn't seem right. He was um, angry at, at tiny things, like he would get really frustrated. Um, he was kind of confused when we were driving. Um, he would look at the map a lot and kind of go like, now where are we going and what are we doing? And, and I would say, well, we're going to California. You know you know this. Like, what? 
like, what, what do you think we're doing? You know, and I thought he was sort of having me on, you know, that he was joking mm-hmm. with me. Um, and then as we got farther and farther away from Tinkertown and, and my stepmother and his sort of familiar um, home, he got more and more sort of confused and anxious and and really angry and upset with me. And that was so confusing because we had always had this really terrific really solid relationship where we totally understood each other, we had great communication, and here's a guy who'd, you know, driven all over the United States by himself, painting all these carnival rides. He loved the atlas, the road atlas. He would carry around and, like, look at all these little back roads and take these crazy side trips to see other, you know, roadside attractions and do all kinds of stuff, and here was this this guy that I knew who was now going, well, where are we? I don't know why we're on this road, and what are you doing, and why are you driving so fast, and now you're driving too slow. And I, I mean, it was just <laughs> really, ah, what's happening? And so I was, I was really freaked out, and I, I brought him to L.A., and, you know, he stayed in my apartment, but it was, it was hard because I didn't, um, he didn't really want to do anything, and he couldn't make any decisions, and I would say, well, let's do this. And he'd go, oh, well, that's, I, don't, I don't even know where you're going. Like, this is ridiculous. And I think he, it was confusing to come to Los Angeles where he had a lot of memories, you know, from 20 years before and sort of see it differently. And that was the beginning of my sort of, well, something is really wrong here, but I don't even know what it is. Because at that point I thought, well, I, it can't be Alzheimer's because he's too young, you know. Like, it just, it, that yep. never crossed our mind at the beginning um, but it took a while. I I think I didn't talk to my stepmother about it for almost two months afterward. I every time I would call home, you know, they would both be on the phone at the same time, and I didn't want to bring it up with him there. And and it was weird, and I was a little scared to even bring it up because I thought, well, maybe it was just me, and maybe we haven't been spending time together, and I don't know, our relationship has changed, or I don't know. You know, I just got so nervous about talking about it and when I finally did get my stepmother alone on the phone and say hey does dad seem weird to you she just burst into tears and she said oh my gosh I thought I was going crazy um thank god you're saying that I'm not that you've noticed this too and then we started sort of putting our heads together and trying to think of how we could you know how we could figure it out because it's really a mystery at the beginning and you just have to kind of you have all these little clues and and we had no idea you know where it would lead us yeah and like you said there's there's lots of clues and and your your poor you know stepmother going oh i'm not going crazy you know not wanting to talk about it and she's trying to protect your dad and be respectful and and all of that stuff i mean those are just such common telltale signs of Of frustration with this disease because people just don't know what to do. Um, I know you had mentioned that there was a telephone um, or television host in New Mexico um, where Tinkertown is really well known, and um, he asked if your dad's hobby was was starting to get kind of out of control. And (laughs) what was that all about? Well, I think... The I, I think he was asking about, you know, was Tinkertown my dad's hobby and mm-hmm. and was it just sort of was it something that went out of control or was that my dad's sort of um mission, you know? Okay. And I, I don't okay. I don't think he had any hobbies, my dad. He just 
he just created. Like, he didn't mm-hmm. do that for fun. He did that because he had to. He was okay. he was really hardwired that way. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so that I wasn't sure if that question had anything to do with with uh his his vision or kind of with the the disease and stuff as no, a No, I think gradually like what did get out of control for him and what were some of the signs and that the things that were worrying my stepmother before I even sort of clued into it were were that he, the you know he he would forget how to use his tools or the things in his you know, workshop, he would go out to make something because he has, a, you know, all these power tools and bandsaws and, you know, stuff that he'd always use to make giant wood carvings and all kinds of, you know. And he would come in the house and go, well, this is broken. And she'd say, well, you, you took it apart. Like, why is it all apart? Well, it's broken. It's totally broken. And And that was starting to really confuse her because why was he taking everything apart? Or sometimes she'd go out and it just, it would have been turned off and, and or unplugged, and she'd go, oh, well, it's not plugged in. Of course it doesn't work. But she didn't think, oh, wow, like, okay, like, what's happening here? You know, it's just mm-hmm. one more little little breadcrumb that you kind of follow these things and go, oh, wow, the, it's getting, cl- like, kind of clearer. But I think you compensate a lot. I know we both did for my dad, and I think my stepmother really did. I remember going to the doctor's, when we finally got him in to sort of have a checkup and they do the mini mental test where, you know, the doctor asks a series of questions to see like, okay, what year is it? And, you know, I'm going to give you five words and you have to repeat them back to me later. And it's a sort of little test that you can kind of see how your short-term memory is working and how your long-term memory is. And it was really hard for my stepmother not to answer those questions and not mm-hmm. to not to answer all the questions. You know, he would say something and she'd go, well, you know, Ross is always doing that. And, and he finally had to say, hey, let's let Ross answer. And and I think that is is our tendency when when we see a loved one going through something, we want to step in and take over, right? And so then it's mm-hmm. easier it's easier for us not to see it. Yep. Yeah, very, very much so. We fill in the blanks. And yeah. and I think part of it is we want the conversation to continue. We don't like those gaps and those silence, no. those unknowns. <laughs> we just kind of squirm at those things. And Oh, my and, God, yes. Yeah. Yeah, now, I we, feel like we just talked and talked and talked when we were with my dad, and especially as his, his language sort of started to disappear, I mean, oh, my gosh, I would just sit at the table at, like, dinner, and it's so quiet, and you're just blah, 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 blah. And, you know, clearly I can talk a blue streak anyway. And I remember once him looking at me and like, why are you talking so much? And then mm-hmm. when you hear things like that, you think, oh, you're not that far gone. <laughs> like, you know exactly yep. what's happening. It's, yeah. You know, well, that was, another thing I think that kind of complicated maybe things, too, is that um, you had noted that when you were around 10 years old, you started noticing your, your uh, you know, signs of your dad maybe being an alcoholic. And, yeah. you know, and that and that can have its own signs. Um, Absolutely. Know. Oh, yeah. So then you're like, okay, well, there's that. So we thought, you know, and he wasn't he wasn't an everyday alcoholic. I don't think, like, I don't know. It's hard to explain. He was a... He would he would go for long stretches without drinking at all, and then you know there'd just be something would like turn off, and he'd just have a whole bunch of drinks, a whole bunch of beers, or whatever, and and just kind of get really sloppy, and then he'd be fine again. You know, it was he was never mean. 
He was never, I don't know, it was confusing, but there was always that, like, hey, is there a beer somewhere? And when he, um, once he started to sort of forget, that that really kicked in. Like, he really had this craving, and I think it made sense because I think it was a, it's a, a way of, of relieving stress or, or covering pain and, you know, you're just trying to knock yourself out a little. And, and so at the beginning it was very difficult because he would, he would find ways to, to get a six pack or open a bottle of wine and like, whoa, suddenly we'd be, you know, with this person who not only is going through Alzheimer's, but is also like a little, you know, out of it. And, and that was very difficult. But that was when we first started noticing the symptoms, we thought, well, maybe he's drinking secretly and we don't even know. Maybe it's changed the way because he wasn't usually, he wasn't a secret drinker. Like you, you knew it was like we'd be at a party and it would just sort of tip over, you know. And, uh-huh. But but we thought, well, maybe that's changed. And so that was difficult too, um and not knowing and and you know he'd also painted for years and years before they took lead out of enamel paint he'd used an air compressor for years so we kind of followed that road too to see like well maybe there's something from all of the all of the paint for all this time and you know he'd been in in these big ride manufacturing companies with all kinds of chemicals and junk and and you just you kind of you hope that there's a a, a better answer, like lead poisoning mm-hmm. is a better answer than Alzheimer's, <laughs> but it kind of uh-huh. is. And you mm-hmm. think, oh, well, you know, there's got to be something else. And um, so we did kind of a long process of elimination before we ca- uh, before we really, you know, kind of came to terms with it, what we had um, and what dad what dad had really. Yeah, well, and I and I appreciate your honesty about uh, the alcohol because that's something, you know, a lot of times people don't want to talk about, but it it is another factor, and, and alcohol itself, you know, there is uh, dementia that is caused, you know, just from drinking, and um, I'm not saying your dad's was by by any stretch, so don't misunderstand me there, but you know, all these different variables that we have in our life um, make a big big difference. You know, if if you've got heart disease and you've got dementia. If you've got that, you know, diabetes and this, I mean, it, it just complicates things. It makes it even messier than, than what it, it is. It really um, does. It really does. And then we have to spend, you know, all this time trying to figure out, oh, okay, well, we're managing that, but you also have to manage this other thing. I, I think there was a long period of time where we were kind of, you know, making sure there weren't beers in the house or if we were having a glass of wine because, you know, at, at a certain point the caretaker goes, well, I could use a glass of wine. And we're, like, drinking uh-huh. it in coffee cups in the washing machine or something, you know. And and that um, that was really, really hard. Although at the same time, I remember very clearly when he, my dad stopped being able to recognize non-alcoholic beer because we would always go well here try this and he'd go this is ridiculous and i hate this stuff why are you making me drink this stuff and one day we just like went hey try this and he went well this is delicious and we were like woo relieved but also Uh incredibly sad because that was like another part of him that we you know like you could see like wow he he's drinking sharps like that's not mm-hmm. that's not dad. <laughs> yep, yep. Um so it's a funny thing. You you realize what you're what you attach to when when things start slipping away, even the bad stuff, like mm-hmm. you miss it a little because it it's 
it's what makes up your it's normal your person. Yeah, it's what makes yeah. up normal. Absolutely. It's- yeah, it's your normal um, getting thrown for a loop. So yeah. yeah, I I can I can definitely definitely appreciate that. And and like you said, as as silly as you know, getting him to drink a, a non-alcoholic beer um, is just a little thing. It's huge. It's huge, huge be- because he always used to know, and now right. now he doesn't. And so it's right. just, you know, and with this disease, there are. Um, so many goofy little losses like that that we yes. that we feel, and you wouldn't think that that's a loss, but it really it it is. It um, is. Because- it is. You start to realize just how many, just millions of little particles make up a person, and and it's it's everything. I I remember watching my dad like comb his hair. He always kept this little black plastic comb in his back pocket and he would pull it out and he would like comb his hair back and then he would put it back in his pocket and I probably saw him do that you know 10,000 times in my life I mean he it was just sort of like that's what he did he just tidied himself up and like boom da da and I remember like watching that slowly slip away and 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 really thinking oh my god like I'm gonna miss that little plastic comb you know and 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 it's like so strange to think that 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 little plastic comb is is a part of of who my dad is or who my you know how I remember him and how I pull that together and and really I think when I was writing this book I I like went over and over all of those things so many times because like I was just um I don't know. It's like they sort of composted in my brain, and and I had to kind of resurrect my dad in order to write this, and then mm-hmm. and then let him go again. And and it was like I built him back up with all those little pieces because I had to kind of get a sense of of who he was before the Alzheimer's really really took him. So it was kind of a gift to write this book in a way because I got to I got to build him back up, and um, oh, and cool. that was. That was special. Well, and I think, you know, one of the the toughest parts about this disease that that people talk about is, you know, they're so afraid they're not going to remember the person who was and still appreciate the person who is today. And like you said, writing and journaling and having these conversations allows you to keep that, maintain that. Absolutely. Instead of being driven by fear, you know, we're really driven by our love um, yes. for that relationship, whatever it looks like, and uh, however silly it might look to somebody else, <laughs> it, it can be really precious to us, like the comb, you know, or, yes. you know, you talk about um, your dad, you know, painting his toenails a deep turquoise, and, you know, <laughs> was that the sign of the disease, or was that your dad just being, you know, your dad, right. and, and and how do you sort that out, how do you approach that, What did, did you say anything, did you ask, or? Oh, my gosh, no, I mean, we were, like, you know, he had always done stuff like that. And so it just kind of, it, it. I don't know, Alzheimer's led him. I mean, he was a guy who was pretty free to begin with, and it just really unlatched him fully. And so, you know, I just remember him sauntering around the house. That was actually when I, um, my my now husband, I'd be, I was dating him when I moved home to live with my dad, and I left him here in L.A., and 
Um, and he would come to visit New Mexico and, and see me, and we were trying to work out our relationship and see if it would sort of weather this big storm. And and that was on one of his visits, and my dad just sauntered in. He was wearing these little, like, leopard skin briefs, you know, these funny, like, peeps. <laughs> crazy right <laughs> and his tattoos he's all tattooed and he painted his toenails turquoise with sherman sherwin williams turquoise paint and he comes <laughs> in and he goes well look at this like aren't these beautiful and my uh, like boyfriend then boyfriend david just looks like whoa <laughs> like here's my dad in these little leopard briefs and he and and all he says to me he goes wow you know your dad has very slim hips <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, bless you, man. You are 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 going to be fine because you're the most level man I've ever met, and and we need you. We need you in this family, you know. So it was it was kind of a great moment, and my dad just ignored it. Like, I mean, he he was just like, yeah, whatever. I'm walking around here doing this thing, and 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 that's kind of who he was always. Um, mm-hmm. But like it just he just got a little freer, you know, and and we tried to let him be himself as much as we could. As long as he was safe and you know, no one was was being injured or horrified too much. We tried to uh-huh. we tried to keep him um happy and, and comfortable. Uh and that was really, you know, by letting him stay at home as long as we could. We he he lived at Tinkertown for almost his entire illness. Um, and it was great. He could still go out and talk to people and be in the museum and play with his dog. And, um, you know, he just hung out all day and kind of watched people come and go and and showed them things. And, and even when he stopped really wanting to talk to people, he was kind of, it was just good for him to be around in the mountains, sitting out in the sun with the with the cats and, and um it felt like, you know, if he'd had a job at a bank or something, he wouldn't have been able to do that. But because he'd created this great world for himself and this kind of wonderful creative life, it was we were able to keep him in it for a really long time. And and I think that was was a, was a, a gift. I think that was a gift he kind of gave himself. But we we tried to pick up where he left off and. And just go, yeah, like, if you want to eat a bunch of ice cream sandwiches, go to it, you know? Like, uh-huh. at a certain point, you just figure, I don't know, it's not going to kill you because we know what is, right? So yeah. then just we let it go a little. If you want to walk around in your leopard briefs and paint your toenails, why not? You why know? not? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I like you, you know, talked about him being safe and happy and, and um you know, that that was kind of where I went with my mom. As long as as she's um, safe, happy, and pain free, that's yes. all I need to. That's all I need to focus on because it's about freedom. It's about them feeling comfortable in their space. Um, you know, and your dad loved I Tinkerton. I mean, to create that and to be able to to live in that. I mean, yes, we should we should be doing that with everybody, allowing them to live in whatever their Tinkerton looks like. You know, absolutely. And, and um you know your tinkertown's a little more eccentric and elaborate than a lot of ours um but it's just it's it's just a cool way to look at things because 
You know, you know um, Bob DeMarco with the Alzheimer's Reading Room always says, you know, you have to, you have to walk into their world. Yes. And you guys really did as a family, um, you know, and you you allowed that. Um, and he actually had a a physical, um, a physical town that he created. I think that that's that that's really yeah. really cool. That's it was really great. Cool. I think that really helped us to loosen up. I mean, we you know we had come from a you know we're a pretty loose family, but but I think it gave us the freedom to kind of go through the illness and like on his his terms a little bit more do you know and i mm-hmm. i think it it helped a lot um later you know his his mom my grandmother was diagnosed with alzheimer's um almost 6 months after my dad was diagnosed and so she had moved to albuquerque to kind of take care of him um and then we quickly realized well she had alzheimer's as well and so mm-hmm. we kind of started to care for her and 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 understanding the importance of kind of letting dad exist in his own time really mm-hmm. helped us with my grandmother as well because she you know she was much older and and she wound up living in a nursing home very quickly because her health was was not great and we wanted to make sure she was safe and she'd taken some bad falls and Tinkertown is not a particularly sturdy place to be so we wanted to make sure she was um safe and comfortable but whenever we would visit she would walk around and it was like she was still living in Aberdeen South Dakota and she would mm-hmm. go hey let's go across town and get lunch and am I having my hair done and we'd say yeah let's do that and and it was just you if I don't know, it just felt like if we could fit ourselves into her world and into my dad's world, it was so much easier than asking them to fit into ours. Like it just it was so much nicer for them and it didn't it it made it nicer for us. And we also learned mm-hmm. so many interesting things by doing that. You know, we just kind and, of flow with. Yeah, and you know, to me that's one of the greatest gifts this disease gives us is is freedom to just relax and just be and and to yes. kind of get rid of the judgment um yes. that we don't we don't even know is so pronounced in our lives but when dementia enters your world you 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 really see the judgment very clearly not only in others but in yourself absolutely and and, and that and then that gives you the ability to change you know, once we recognize it, because I think so many times we don't, we don't even recognize that we're being judgmental. You know, we're just living life, and you know, it's, right. it might be fast and it might be kind of brisk, um, but we don't, we we don't take into account the power um, of our effect on others because we're yes. so into ourselves. And you know, I, I'd love for any of our listeners to call in um, and ask a question or make a comment. I just think this is a fascinating conversation at 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. Or you can always use the chat box as well. We'd um, We'd love to hear from you. Now you actually made the decision to to go and move back to Tinkertown. 
Um, yes. and, and and how was that? I mean, that had to be a pretty mighty big adjustment for you. <laughs> it was a pretty <laughs> mighty big adjustment. Um, it really was. It um, You know, I hadn't lived at home since I left for college, so I hadn't been there in, you know, 15 years. And um, I'd, uh, I just moved back into my old bedroom in our house. But I think... You know, when your old bedroom is in a house that's surrounded by a roadside attraction and there's RVs unloading tourists and you're, like, outside your bedroom window at, like, 9 in the morning, it's very strange. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it took a little bit of time to get adjusted. Um, I think my stepmother and I were, we were both so um, heartbroken by my father's illness and, and also trying to sort of, you know, um, kind of cope with it on our own and 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 handle it and she you know she'd been really running the museum and and taking care of my dad and trying to figure out what was wrong for probably 2 years before he was even diagnosed and so she she entered into our sort of post diagnosis like family togetherness adventure um already like exhausted and I was coming from, you know, living in Los Angeles in my 20s, frolicking about, doing whatever. And I was kind of flaky and a little unorganized and, and really sad. And I missed my friends and I missed my boyfriend. And, I um, and you know, my dad was like just my great, like my, you know, my first love, really. Like my dad and I were so close um, that I was having a really hard time trying to think about myself without him. I think my identity was so tied up to him and to growing up in Tinkertown and to to all those things that when I sort of saw him drifting away, I, I really didn't know who I was. So when I moved home, it was just like, wow. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> so it took us um, a little while to to kind of get the hang of it. And then you know, we had all these beautiful visions of like, I'll cook these elegant dinners and we'll hang out and have these family moments and it'll be amazing. And um, and sometimes it was, you know, but there's a lot of just the kind of holy smokes, like let's just eat a big piece of cheese and a tortilla and run to the next thing or let's just make sure that, you know, the museum gets opened and closed and dad doesn't walk down the road and... And that's our day. And and once we sort of realized that, we all loosened up a little. Like it became not, um, I mean, it's never easy, but it became, we became more forgiving with each other, I think. And that that is something that has carried through in our family since, um, ever since, really. I think it, that watch, having this happen to us made our family closer in so many ways and, and really, like, revealed us to each other in a different way. And, and and I think encouraged us to be compassionate with each other and and sort of see, like, this is what you can do. This is all you have. And that's okay. You know, like, some, some people, we had friends who would come every day and check in, and some friends would come once and go, well, that's all I can do. And, and, and it's tempting to be distressed about that or like to feel like oh I can't believe they wouldn't show up but at a certain point we realized everyone has a different threshold and everyone 
is doing all they can do, and that's that's all we can ask, right? Mm-hmm. And that was really all we could ask of each other, and and so I think it was it was kind of I don't know. I mean, I'm very grateful that we were able to sort of come to that place because it's it's still it still is a part of our family, and this experience has has sort of changed us and and tightened us in a way that that I I I don't know. I I mean, I can't imagine. It wouldn't, but but it's really I I really recognize it and I really value it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, Harry um, is just noting um, in the chat box here. You learned how to go with the flow and make no excuses. And he says, "I just love your attitude." And again, I I think that's part of the the beauty of this disease is the the simplicity of that of that being able to forgive and accept and recognize and appreciate and and those are all uh, such key words that we overlook yes you know we talk them but we don't live them and and this disease allows us to really live them and feel them yes i do think it does I had such a great appreciation for my grandmother, much more so than I'd had after knowing her my whole life, just sort of being with her in the last, like, you know, year and a half of her life, I I, I, I really connected to her because I felt like she was more open because Alzheimer's had sort of, like, you know, cut away all the little things that she used to kind of tie up and keep closed. It had it kind of cracked her open, and and she was very free about sharing things and and um, and about just kind of living in a way, and and that was was really remarkable and really amazing to sort of see her in a different light. She was such a quiet, you know, very very um, I don't know, I'm very conservative, very very tight, like oh here's the tiny little thing that I do, and I don't talk about anything, and I'm very private and and then she wasn't and so i feel like i did get a better sense of her you know and and that was that was a gift i have to take that as a gift i mean it was hard but i i do have to sort of see those things as like oh you know and there were great moments with my dad and we had we had so many good laughs and so um so much time just sort of hanging out together like at a certain point i just realized like i've just really come home to be with my dad and so i was and we walked around and picked up rocks and built bottle walls and you know ate ice cream and just that's kind of what we did and mm-hmm. and i really valued that yeah uh-huh yeah, it's it's pretty precious because it allows you, I think, to create um, more precious memories when you when you change that mindset. Everything, I mean, you 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 are looking to capture the moments. Yeah. You're you're looking to create the moments um, versus just walking through life. You you live it uh, much more consciously. Yeah. Um, and 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 that's just massively massively huge now your your grandma um passed away um and your dad had dementia how did he go through that process did he understand where was he at did he grieve he did a little um 
he didn't really I mean, he was there, but he was pretty remote. Uh, I Mm -hmm. remember going, it all overlapped. I mean, it was a kind of, it was a wild overlap um, of my, I had come back to Los Angeles and and gotten engaged to my boyfriend and and then come back to New Mexico. I was always, you know, flying back and forth and spending time and and it was while I, I right after we'd gotten engaged that I came home and I was looking for wedding dresses with my mom and talking to people about the plans to get married and all these things and my grandmother was very very ill and I I got off the airplane and went right to the um home where she was living she was in the hospice and I went right to her and I could tell like she was you know floating away and the next day she she passed away and I I felt like she was such a a kind of great character that that she would have wanted me to do as many things on one plane ticket as I could you know she was very practical like good come here I'll go you should get your wedding dress see your dad like you know you're just doing as many things you get a good value out of that plane ticket and so um, I remember going with my dad and my stepmother to talk to the um, funeral home about making arrangements, and he was kind of like a child who understands it. I mean, I have two children now, and so it's sort of like my daughter is nine, and when I explain that that people have died, she understands it, and she gets sad but it's also two seconds later she goes, well, are we having ice cream for dessert? Do you know? Mm-hmm. It's a kind of, and I think he was a little bit like that, and he kept saying, you know, my mom died. But it was just that he didn't ever cry, and he wasn't ever, I don't know, he was kind of there, but then he was happy to eat a sandwich later, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was hard. And then so my stepmother and I kind of took over and, um, and went back to Aberdeen with my grandmother and, and buried her next to my granddad. Um, and that was like, yeah, and I think my dad didn't really have a sense of once we'd left and gone, he never asked again, like, why don't we go visit my mom anymore? Or, you know, just she had kind of, she was gone mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. Yeah, my mom was like that with my dad when he passed um, in '01, and she was she was very um, stoic and so socially appropriate and greeting everybody, but she didn't really make the connection that the man in the casket she had been married to almost 50 years. Right, and and that was actually a blessing because I think if she would have made that connection, she probably would have gone shortly after him. Right. And and so, you know, I I chose to just look at it as as a gift that you know, she was able to partake, people were able to um see her and interact with her and I mean, socially, they everyone's just like, "Oh my gosh, your mom's doing so well." And I'm like, she, she doesn't <laughs> yes. she's not quite taking it all in." Right. And, but that but that that's okay. That's, that's Absolutely. Okay. I think those so the sort of social mechanism like we're so sort of hardwired to be like polite and we know the sort of rules of engagement you know like okay i'm going to say thank you and you're going to say hello and like all those things um and i think that sticks with you longer than almost anything else it's a kind of a wild thing but the the connection to people kind of 
I don't know, or specifics kind of drifts away. But you have a mm-hmm. feeling of like, if I see that person, they're familiar. Like I know for me, when my dad started, you know, at a certain point he lost my name, he lost my stepmother's name, he lost, you know, he he couldn't place us, but he always brightened when he saw us. And so we were familiar, but he just couldn't like land us in, in his timeline, do you know? And I think... So for for someone to pass away, it's just like, well, I'm not seeing them. They could be anywhere. I mean, I Mm -hmm. think, I don't know. It was interesting having children right after I lost my dad because you see it all kind of roll forward instead of rolling backward. And, you know, with a baby, when you walk out of the room, you're gone forever. They don't know where, you know, like you've fallen Mm -hmm. into a hole. You will never return. And then you come back and they're like shocked and surprised to see you. And and then a little while later, they learn that when you walk out of the room, you're you're just out of the room, but you're still alive and in the house and in the world. But for my dad, it had gone the reverse, you know. And so I think I think that that's why death is sort of like, well, they're just not here, so I'm not mm-hmm. going to worry about them right now, you know. Yeah. 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 Was it, was it, um, no, I want to ask you this because I'm really curious about this. Um, Your father's neurologist used a ballpoint pen to describe your dad's memory loss. Can you share that with our audience? Oh, absolutely. Um, We had this wonderful neurologist, Dr. Gorman, who was just really great. And I remember um, when my brother and I went to talk to him about what was happening to my dad. Um, he unscrewed a pen and he said, look, we can give him Aricept, which is a, a drug, um, and it will sort of push back the symptoms of his Alzheimer's. And he took the spring of the pen and he and he smushed it between his fingers so that it tightened up, you know. So he said, and this is what happens when you take Aricept. It pushes the symptoms back, and mm-hmm. then at a certain point, the drug starts to wear off, and and there will be a, a big drastic change. And then, and then, he opened his fingers, and the spring popped open into its normal size again, and rolled off the table. And he said, and then you'll be at a different place. And so you have to understand, it's not a cure; it is something that will will sort of hold back the symptoms for a while. But when it stops working, they'll just spring back to where they would have been if they weren't held back, in the same way the spring just springs back to shape. Um, And that really was an, I don't know, it was just such a visual for me. to. It really helped me to understand that. And then later, even without the Aricept, the the way that my dad changed was like that spring. Like he would sort Uh of stay in one place for a long time and I think they call it you're in you're, you sort of plateau and then and then suddenly you know overnight almost he he would drastically change and it would just be like wow we've dropped you know we're at a whole different level now we're at a completely different space and that was that was hard um particularly once I'd moved back to Los Angeles after I got married and everything it was it was very hard to go and visit my dad like because I wasn't there to see it sort of you know gradually happening. I wasn't there for the day to day, so I would see him and then I would return and he would be a completely different level and I and that was that was difficult because I hadn't sort of had the day to day to get used to it. Mhm. Yeah. Can can you um tell us um 
you know, do you feel your dad's decline and change, um, you know, with this disease changed your relationships as well, you know, with <clears throat> with your mom and your stepmom and your your whole family and um and and even your boyfriend, you know, how um I, I can't imagine that it didn't. Oh, um, absolutely. It did. It really did. Um I mean, I think, well, it's hard to even know. I, my, it's, I, it's hard to know where to start, truthfully, because I do think it changed everything. Um, with my, my then boyfriend, he, you know, it made me realize, like, oh, my gosh, like, life is short. If you find this person that you, that you love and you feel like you should be with, you should be with them, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you don't know what's going to happen. So, and I think my dad was always saying, well, what are you doing here? Well, I thought you lived in Los Angeles. Like, he was really confused that I would come home. Like, why would you come back to live in your old bedroom? Like, what's what's mm-hmm. wrong with you? Go live your life, you know? And I kept saying, no, I, like, I really want to be here with you. I really want to take this time. But at a certain po- point, I think I started to understand why he was saying that. And it And really, I think what he was sort of saying was like, hey, get on with it. Like, we know it, it ends. So, like, like have, have, have your life while you have it. And don't mm-hmm. come sit back here with me. And, and I think I had to do that because I think I would always regret not spending more time with him. Mm-hmm. I had to move home. There was no other option for me. But, but at a certain point, I, I also had to move away. And I, and I had mm-hmm. to kind of find my own family and, and I really, you know, realized I really wanted to start a family with David and 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 have kids. And we, I, we really, um, I had my son so quickly after we got married. Um, and I think part of that was like this need to see it from the other side. Like I just, mm-hmm. I just want to see growth. I just want to see new learning and new words. And I want to. I want to see life, and that was that was something my dad gave me. I mean, I think a huge appreciation for for life and discovery and curiosity, and and I just felt like, oh my gosh, I have to do that. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. Now, now, Harry, Harry's got another question he's posing. He said, <laughs> "What kind of advice can you give to care partners to remember those loving memories and not dwell on the oh, I miss you so much." And and kind of go down the rabbit hole. Well, I think um, for me it helped a lot to write things down. Um, in it, it helped a lot to write them down during the sort of worst parts. Um, I took a lot of notes, and that's because I'm a, a writer. That's what I like to do. It's what I find comfort in. But um, but. I remember during some of the hardest times, I would write stories to myself about better times. And that just kind of, I don't know, it just reminded me that we have, the, we have this great sort of treasure trove of, of life. And, and just because we're not going to always have it, it doesn't mean that that negates what's come before and so I really just had to kind of loop back through and think, oh, my gosh, I had this wonderful, like, look at this wonderful memory and look at this one and and just just write it out or just sit to yourself and think, okay, give me one good 
good day. Give me one mm-hmm. good day today. And that can be from anywhere in your history. And just think of that one good day and how lucky you were and how happy you felt on that one good day. And then that will mm-hmm. remind you that there was another one and like six more after that and and how terrific it is. And, you know, none of us are going to be here forever. I think when we realize that that that, I don't know, that death is inevitable, it helps. Um, it helps make everything else bright in a way. And and um, I don't know, for that, that was for me really helpful, was just to try to remember the really good thing, even when we were seeing really bad things. Yeah, I know, you know, for me, my mom just recently passed, and I did pretty good. And then that month hit, and then I kind of went yeah. down the rabbit hole, and I, you know, had a couple of friends go, "Come on, you know, you can't do that. It's been a month." And I'm like, you know what? Everybody grieves on a different pace. Yes. And and I just need to feel this. And and for Absolutely. me, um, what I did, and and what I'll continue to do is to realize that you can't have that great loss without having a great love. No. And so then I tried to reframe it that it, you know, it's. It's a gift to me to feel this pain because some people will never, ever feel it because they've yeah. never had <clears throat> that type of relationship. And so that would <clears throat> that would help me reframe. And then um, laughter, I think, is so important, too. Oh, you know, remembering, so important. you know, <laughs> your, your dad and his, his boxers and his, you know, and his turquoise yes. toes. And, oh, I my mean, gosh, yeah. Those things, you're going... That's my dad. No one else's. That's mine. You know. That's I mean, it's mine. Just, it's just you claim those things, and you do. And they're they're precious, and they're beautiful, and and they're hopeful. And I can't believe our hour has blown by so <laughs> so quickly. It's oh really my been goodness. A- very fun, fun conversation. And I I really would love for people to. Um, to get your book called Leaving Tinkertown, um, I think it's just a, a beautiful, heartfelt story of the uniqueness um, that belongs to each of us if we choose to claim it. And, and again, the gifts that are wrapped in this disease, um, you know, the lessons that are taught, and we can look at them as being really painful and hurtful, or we can really truly look that there are lessons that can help us improve our lives. And, and I, I am a strong believer that as difficult as this disease can be at times, there are beautiful, beautiful life lessons that will enrich your life if you just open up your mind um, to learning. Yes, you know, I how think to, so too. Well, great. Um, now, to get your book, they can go to TanyaWardGoodman.com. And you also have a Facebook page. So if somebody types in just Leaving Tinkertown. Leaving Tinkertown on Facebook, yes. And yep. The, yep. And you can find the book on you know your local bookseller, Amazon, the University of New Mexico Press site. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. It, it really was a pleasure to have you on the show, Tanya. Right. And, it's uh, such a nice time. Wish you wish you all the best, and and thank you for sharing your story and taking the time to write it. Um, you know, people don't have a clue how much work it is to put a book together, but <laughs> you know, these stories are so important um, for us to all hear and to share. So, thank you very much for all your work. Uh, thank you, thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Okay, bye now. All right, bye.
Before I introduce our next guest, I'm just going to do some uh, mid-program highlights. Um, some of the platforms that Alzheimer's Speaks um, has to offer um, that you can go back and check our, our prior radio show, the one on the 25th, was we talked about surviving Alzheimer's with Paula Spencer Scott. And that book, Surviving Alzheimer's, I brought it actually to my memory cafe. I have not gotten it back yet. They love, love, love this book. It's a great um, resource on multiple levels. So um, listen to that conversation. That might be another book that you want to want to pick up. Our next show will be on the 8th, and we're going to be talking about the decision-making um, you know, process when Alzheimer's hits. So, And again, all of our shows are archived, so you can go back and listen to any of them at any time. On, uh, on our website, you can also find our last Dementia Chats, which is a webinar where I interview people with dementia. And we talked about living safely with dementia. So we talked about wandering. We talked about vacationing and shopping and, and just living within your own home and how to do that best. Um, our next chat will be coming up on um, April 11th, um, which again is next week. And that will start at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Again, if you go to our About page, there's a tab specifically for Dementia Chats. You can log in. There's no cost to that at all. Um, and then some of the blog posts that I want to mention is our intern, Michelle, just did a great blog called Kudos to Caregivers, which is cute and has had a lot of chatter on that. Um, and there is one um, blog post that I just wrote, and I'm just going to share it with you here on the show um, about the memory cafes because I'm such a believer in these social support um, groups for people living with uh, memory loss and their care partners and and the impact that they can have. And Beth had wrote to me and she said, my parents went to the memory cafe this week. My dad was reluctant, but he said he'd try because his mom really wanted um, to go. And after they got in the car, um, he said he really enjoyed himself. And uh, her mom said the same thing. And she said, the other day I took him to lunch with a friend from high school. And she said, out of the blue, he told my friend that he has Alzheimer's, and then he told her about the memory cafe and how much he liked it. She said, I felt the type of pride I usually have for my kids, but it was my dad. I've never heard him talk about it. I can't thank you enough for reaching out to me um, and letting me know you know, about about the um memory cafes and I say that not to pat myself on the back at all this is I, I'm just um, very much an advocate for getting these um, memory cafes popping up all over um, it's a concept that again that came from the UK but very 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 important stuff uh, for us to to deal with so and and to be able to share. And if you want more information, again, you can go to the website um, and just go to the About tab, and there's a, a whole page on on the Memory Cafe um, concept as well as the, the Purple Angel Project, which is um, all about becoming dementia-friendly as well. So would love to... Love to talk to you about that. Let me go ahead and introduce our next guest here, Renee Farley, um, never inspired to, uh, to be a writer. 
Um, she's an interior designer, and if you go to her website, you'll see the beautiful work that she does. But she <clears throat> she was really inspired to write her book, All We Need is a Happy Ending, um, by her sister Diane's story, because you know she's someone who has lived with this disease, and she found it very powerful and very moving. Um, She's always seeking, you know, a happy ending, and Renee kind of waded through all the insurance forms, and she dealt with the doctors and the holistic practitioners and, you know, did everything that typical care partners do. But I think you're going to really be inspired by the powerful message of unconditional love, and I think we heard that with our with our last author in Leaving Tinkertown as well. Um Renee, you know, told me that really the book was written out of passion. Um, she was trying to find a cure for her sister's disease, and she basically documented the six-year odyssey in hope that it would help other families going through what they did, and to also tell the story of Diane's fight and constant struggle um, during which she found uh, her greatest love. So welcome, Renee. How are you today? Hi, Lori. I'm great. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us today. I'm I'm excited to uh, uh, share with our audience your book, All We Need is a Happy Ending. Um, again, I, I just find these stories so powerful. Um, they just help us have the conversation to remove the fear and, and give great insight as to as to this disease. So um, can you, you know, to start with, can you tell us... Um, how did how did you even know what to look for when it came to dementia with your sister? How did how did you guys recognize there was a problem? Well, the early signs um I mean it happened so quickly and if anybody's ever gone through early onset Alzheimer's disease, it's so much different than people that get Alzheimer's in their later years. Diane was 49 and um the first time I even saw it was, you know, simple things. She all of a sudden could not figure out how to play a card game that we played all the time. That was the first sign. But, uh, you know, the things that you need to look for is, is for them just struggling to do the things they normally do. Um, Diane got laid off uh, at work. She worked for a local TV station for 18 years. And all of a sudden they put her on leave and said, you know, she's got you know, some issues. She thought, you know, she was. they thought she was just stressed out and maybe needed a little break, so they put her on short-term disability. And um, she was just doing, you know, odd things. So as soon as they put her on disability, of course, I had to take her to a doctor to have it approved. So, you know, they started sending her psychologists. And, and again, it was just step by step by step. Um, again, she would do very strange things like after she wasn't working she of course never wore a, wore a watch and she had a watch collection she had like 30 watches at one point but she never had even looked at these for years but she told me one day she went to the store and she bought 30 batteries for all of her watches and you know I thought that was a little odd and she was a gardener she loved her flowers and one day I went over and she'd planted all her flowers but they were all just barely in the ground and you know there was like three inches of roots sticking up and I said well 
why did you plant your flowers that way? And she said, oh, Martha Stewart said that's the, that's the new way of planting flowers. And, you know, you just kind of laugh a little bit, but, you know, you just you just didn't know exactly, you know, how to to treat all this because at this point we had no idea what was going on in her head. And, you know, she read a lot of women's magazines and everything that she read about her confusion and her brain fogs, she blamed on menopause um, mm-hmm. because I guess, you know, we had never been in menopause yet, but and had never had children. But I guess it's the same way. You, you know, your brain gets sucked of all the energy for a while. So I mean, it was just something that, you know, she thought was just her age. Mm-hmm. Um, but it got to the point where she was struggling more and more for words, uh, which we all do. But um, again, it took us eleven months. And 11 specialists, we just kept digging further and further and further because I just didn't believe anything the doctors were telling me because it just didn't make sense because I knew her because she was my best friend. Um, And uh, finally, you know, they came up with the conclusion that it was early onset Alzheimer's. So, you know, it's nowadays they've come up with a lot more um, if you do see some strange things happening with a family member, you know, as of recently, there's a test that you can print out on the computer, and it's like a two-page test. In fact, I printed it out for my dad and his wife, who are 84, and they're always worried. And, you know, like a simple thing of, like, can you draw a clock? So mm-hmm. it's kind of a family joke now. Whenever anybody does something goofy or can't find a word or forgets something, we always go, draw a clock, and they'll draw a clock in the air or drop a clock on a piece of paper. But um, And as of last month, now they're uh, offering a blood test that they say is 90% um, foolproof that will tell whether you have Alzheimer's or not. So, um, again, it's just looking for things that just are a little bizarre and just not normal for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, very true. You had talked about, you know, the whole hormone thing. Um, you know, my mom uh, started having problems in her mid-50s, and this was 30 years ago, but the doctors totally poo-pooed it to hormones. And, it, you know, it went un, untreated for 10 years. And mm-hmm. the frustration, it was so sad. And granted, there's more accessibility and more knowledge about it now, um, but really still not as much as there should be in my in my mind for 30 years. Um, oh, no. You know, it, it's 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 kind of incredible. And, you know, I, I, I love when you said, you know, 11 months and 11 doctors, you did not give up and you didn't just take their word for it. And I think that's one of the problems doctors are probably having with boomers like us is, you know, yeah. they're not God, they're not God anymore. And right. if it doesn't feel right and doesn't resonate in our gut, we're going to keep looking for answers. And, you know, my mom just so believed in her doctor and that was the final word and we couldn't we couldn't get her off the stick. You know, mm-hmm. to do anything mm-hmm. else and you know, and so and so you do the dance. You know, you you do the dance. Um, well, what you know. we found is that no doctor ever wants to admit they don't know, so they always mm-hmm. just come up with something. Again, mm-hmm. it was going from psychiatrist to neurologist to you know, I mean, everybody was testing her and testing her, and you know, all these different theories. And you know, bless their hearts, ten years ago there just wasn't that much um, that was out in the world on Alzheimer's, especially early onset, and nobody wanted to look at somebody, you know, that age. 
And when we look back at it, you know, when we really analyze different stories, it probably started in her mid-40s, you know, different mm-hmm. things that were happening in her life. So, But, yeah, again, you have to be such a strong advocate, you know, and keep pushing until you get this figured out. But it's, again, so much easier today to get them diagnosed than it was 10 years ago or when you were going through it with your mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's and, and thank goodness. How would you recommend somebody really get informed about the disease? Um, I would say again, you just have to be so diligent in finding out all the information that you possibly can, and look into all the different approaches. Um, if you read my book, you realize we went the whole. Uh, traditional and holistic route when I found out there was no cure for Alzheimer's and that um, Aricips and Amenda were just a very short-term cure um, and that there really was no other alternative. I did go holistic. We had family members that had taught me about holistic medicine for years and I was very open to it and Diane was very open to it. So we went to a clinic and we tried everything possible just because you couldn't just sit around and watch her go. You had to do something at that age. And I was Mm -hmm. totally convinced that that I could cure her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even Mm -hmm. though the holistic doctors told me right up front, you know, maybe we can, you know, help it from progressing as quickly as some other people, but, you know, we don't have a cure for it. But again, I couldn't sit around and and, and not do anything, so we looked into every aspect that I possibly could. Um, one thing that I did, which I recommend everybody do, is get on Google Alert and type in the word Alzheimer's, and you will get 10, 15 Alzheimer's articles a day, anything that's going on, any research, any stories, anything that's going on in your town or in the world of Alzheimer's, you'll get an email on it so you can read all the articles, you can keep up on anything that's going on in Congress, you can get involved in so many different ways. Um, And again, it, it teaches you so many different things that are available to you now. I mean, like last month I was reading about the new GPS tracking system that are built in shoes now into your tennis shoes. So mm-hmm. used to be very expensive ankle bracelets that you could put on them. Now, um, I mean, these are expensive too. They're several hundred dollars, but it's worth it. So if somebody is a wanderer, you can buy them a pair of tennis shoes that has a GPS tracking system built right in, and uh, you can always keep you know track of them. But again, it's just it takes time. It takes you know a lot of um, research to find out everything that you possibly can, and then that can be frustrating too because everything that you read, there's still no cure. So, but again, anything you can possibly do to stay informed and help your loved one, you've got to do it. Yeah, it's, um, you know, you'd mentioned the, the GPS tracking system. Um, you know, they have definitely come down in prices, and there's there's new technology, you know, just constantly um, going out. Um, for those that aren't familiar with Us Against Alzheimer's, that is an absolutely great um great organization to be part of and they're on Facebook you can sign up they're very active in terms of government but they do a newsletter daily and send out and they kind of gather all the information from research and stuff a wonderful wonderful resource um, to get information but yeah those Google alerts are 
are amazing. Um, and it's amazing how many people every day are lost. And the minute they are lost, it comes on and, and, and notice is sent to everybody that is in uh, the Google Alerts Alzheimer's Center. Everybody is emailed where that person lives, where they were last seen, and so everybody can go out and search for them. So that's a wonderful thing to be involved with, too. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, absolutely fantastic. And so, again, I think part of just getting connected to the community, I think people will be shocked at how big this commu- this community of, of people dealing with dementia is because even though we're not talking about it maybe with our friends, um, people all over the world are touched and they're connected and this grassroots effort is really growing and moving and, and pushing forward. I uh, you know, I'm supposed to be an expert, um, and and I I probably know a lot more than most. But there's so much I I, I can't even keep up with all the stuff. I mean, you even if you read 24/7, you you couldn't keep up with exactly. all the stuff that's going on, which is a good problem to have. Um, right, right. But it, but again, that's again why it's so important to become your own loved one's advocate because nobody has all the answers because there's too much going on. Too, you know, and this is a baby disease. Um, you know, they don't know the causes. They don't have a cure. Um, there's just about everything is unknown. Um, even the studies that are taking place are fairly small. You know, we're under-researched, um, we're underfunded, and um, you know, we're we're under-supported, and so it it we can all help be a piece of of um, spreading that awareness and spreading the knowledge by, again, just having these simple conversations. And I don't know. I mean, did you see the um, uh, report by? Uh, oh gosh, forgot his name all of a sudden. The guy, um, the movie star, Hilarity Seth for Charity. Rogen. Seth Rogen. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, I love him. And the fact that, you know, his mother-in-law has Alzheimer's, early onset Alzheimer's, and he's watched her basically become a vegetable in five or six years, just like I did with Diane, um, and started Hilarity with Charity. So he's got a lot of the movie stars um, putting on charity events, and all of the money goes to Alzheimer's. And he went to Congress last week. Did you see that video? Mhm. Yep. Oh, yep. it was great. But out of, you know, what, 25 chairs that, you know, the congressman should have been sitting in, there was three congressmen that showed up. And, you know, he gave a great, compelling, funny speech to Congress, but only three people heard it. And that's the part that's a real shame, too, is that, you know, we're just still, you know, baby steps. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that you heard this, but for the audience that didn't know that, even last week they came out with it used to be one in eight women are going to get breast cancer. Now it's one in six over 60 are going to get Alzheimer's. So that's a pretty scary thought. Um, and it just has to get more publicity. It has to get more funding. It's just mm-hmm. getting out of control. It really it really is. And it's it's such an important important factor, um, and the numbers change. I, you know, that's one of the things that I have a hard time with is <laughs> you can't compare numbers from last year to this year because they they assess them different all the time, and so mm-hmm. it it gets confusing. But you can't, no matter how you slice it, the numbers are massive, and they're still, uh, in my opinion, under documented because 
so many people won't talk about this. So many people won't go to the doctor because they're afraid of the stigma um, and, you know, what's going to happen with them. Um, and so, and, and then there's others that just think it's, it's old age, it's forgetfulness, it's normal, and then all of a sudden it's not so normal. And there's a crisis. You know, Someone's wandered away or gotten in a car accident or, um, you know, whatever it might be. And it's also a little alarming. Last week I was reading that if you do take this blood test and you do find out that you have the gene that um, may turn into Alzheimer's, then you have to worry about your long care insurance plan. If mm-hmm. you haven't taken one out, which you know people in their 40s and 50s probably aren't thinking about that quite yet, mm-hmm. you probably won't be able to do that now. So, you know, it's going to prevent people from taking the test because they're going to be afraid of their long-term care. So there's just got to be a lot of laws that are going to change, you know. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's just so expensive and it just tears families apart by the costs. When I was looking for some place to put my sister, it was seven, $8,000 a month for Alzheimer's Center, and we couldn't afford that. So um, we eventually found a beautiful place for her. But, you know, that's about the average, you know. Yep, yep. Yeah, and you're you know that was good to point out about the the long term insurance because you know it's nice to know but you really have to be prepared ahead of time you know and there are a few doctors out there who you know will say you know we'll take this test but I'm I'm not going to put the results down until I'll tell you but you need to get your ducks in a row and then I'll document it in the file because once it's in the file it, it you know, it's not going away, and very few doctors right. will do that. But I know I, I have heard a few stories of doctors who are willing to do that. And you know, you can't, uh, you have to protect yourself. You have to be, right. you have to be smart. Um, and you know, and the rules of the game are going to continue to change on how this affects um, insurance and just just your normal health care insurance um, mm-hmm. as well and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's. It's a it's an interesting process and it's extremely complicated, and um, but it's one that I, again we have to have the conversation here. Um, can you tell us uh, you know, how and why you think people should consider becoming a really diligent advocate? We kind of touched on that, that uh, because no one really has the answers. But can you give us All a little right. bit more depth to your insights there? Oh, well, I think this is the most important thing you can do for your loved one. If you're their caregiver, uh, you have to be their care advocate. And there was many times on our journey um, where the experts that we were consulting with thought it should be one way, and I intuitively knew my sister and what her needs were, and I was a diligent advocate for her. And I, I had to trust myself and trust my guts and and just speak up for her and say, no, this is not right. I know her. Um, better than anybody, and this cannot be. Um, I remember at times when, you know, later on, she would have a seizure and she'd go to the hospital and, and you know, apparently she had sprained her back and nobody knew it because she couldn't talk. And so they, they said, oh, you know, she's screaming because she's scared because she has Alzheimer's. I said, no, 
My sister mm-hmm. has a very high tolerance for pain, and she's not that type of person. She's not scared. She's in pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but they would just oversee things like that. But again, I fought and fought and fought, and again, I knew nothing about this. As you said, I've been an interior designer for 30 years. I have no background in anything medical or writing for you know, as much as that goes. I mean, I've never had a writing class in my life, yet I wrote a book. But you just have to trust yourself um, and go and fight for your loved ones for, for everything. And, you know, it will just come automatically, like it did with me, I'm sure. But you just can't be afraid. And uh, it it did my heart good. The Last month I have a, a girlfriend that's in the hospital with cancer, and I walked in to visit her, and her daughter was there, and she says, oh, I am so glad I just read your book because I wouldn't have known that I can stand up to these doctors and ask questions and do my own research. And she goes, now I have the strength to do that, and I am. She goes, I'm documenting everything, I'm recording everything, and and I'm looking it up, and I'm questioning them. And I said, good for you. I says, if by reading my book does nothing more for people than to give them the guts, you know, to stand up to these doctors when they think they need to, you know, mm-hmm. that's all I asked for. You know, I mean, the book was written to help others that were going through what we're going through. And we tried to take it step by step. And, you know, going back even to the holistic um, scenario, a lot of the stuff that we did 10 years ago, um, you know, like they said, pull all her fillings out. And I did it, you know, because of the aluminum. I took all the aluminum out of her house. I took all the aluminum out of her her body and the products that touched her body. We made her whole house very organic and holistic. And people thought I was just crazy and it didn't work. But, you know, today they're still writing about they're finding more and more facts that, you know, aluminum can be a deterrent um, in one's health. So, again, it's just... Um, Trusting yourself, you know, listening to and knowing your loved one and, and standing up for them. Mm-hmm. Now, in the book, you um, you talk about a, a story of, you know, your your sister st- started having a relationship with a with a man, and um, and there got to be a lot of jealousy, and where she was living, they kind of put the kibosh on on her on her seeing this man and and being on the bus with him can you can you share a, a little bit on that i i had a similar situation with my mom and and um but if you can share that story with oh, our, that our was, readers that was my favorite story when diane was living she was basically living in in a senior home she was the only one that had alzheimers and they didn't even treat people with alzheimers but she wasn't far enough gone yet that I could put her in some place like that. So we found a senior home down the street from me here. And, you know, she's a lovely girl, and everybody thought she was a spy when she first came in because she was so young. Nobody could figure out why she was there because she was 52. And everybody else's, you know, in their 70s and 80s and 90s. But anyway, um, everybody watched over her there, which was wonderful. They all, I think it did their heart good because, yeah, they might have been on walkers and they might have been old and their bodies were falling apart, but they all had their brains and they could still do everything. Diane couldn't do anything. She couldn't participate in the art classes or the exercise classes or, um, you know, the chats by the fireplace, the book clubs. She couldn't do none of that. So basically she was sitting in her room a lot 
And mm-hmm. one day, in fact, it was the day that Diane and I walked in and checked the place out before we even moved her in, Abdon, who was the um, bus driver there, he's the one that took everybody to all their appointments and took them all to, to all of their events, he saw her and fell madly in love with her. And mm-hmm. he thought that, you know, she was with me and that we were checking in our mother or something, you know, and he kept seeing her and just thought it was somebody's daughter and just was in awe of her. And you know, she was lovely with her long, red, curly hair and big smile and... And um, finally, he asked who she was, and, and, you know, the help said that she she lived there, and he was just heartbroken. And anyway, he's, he came up to me one day, and he said, um, is it okay if Diane rides on the bus with me, you know, just to get her out of her room? And I said, oh, absolutely, that would be wonderful. So every day he would go pick her up, put her on the bus in the front seat, and she would just ride with him all day. Because And he'd bring her home for lunch, and then he'd put her back on the bus, and they would go drive all day long. And she just loved it. And then she felt she had a job. That was her job, was taking care of, helping Abdon take care of the people on the bus. And then all of a sudden, they started getting romantic, and it became this beautiful love story. And Abdon was the most wonderful man. He was her age. Her height's a little, little, you know, five foot two, um, retired military with six kids of his own, a caregiver. I mean, he was just an amazing, amazing man. And um, they ended up having a little romance. And all of a sudden, all of the old women on the bus got very, very jealous of Diane because she was getting too much of Abdon's attention and they weren't getting enough of his attention. So they boycotted her. They went to the manager and said, we don't want Diane on the bus anymore. Well, I was heartbroken. And I had just gotten married, and my husband, you know, I wanted to sign a petition because I knew all the gals, you know, that loved Diane wouldn't mind her on the bus. And my husband said, no, we don't want to get Abdon fired. We're already pushing the envelope, you know, here, so we don't want to get Abdon fired. So I had to kind of back off, and I was just heartbroken because here she was stuck in her room, you know, for several hours a day. Well, one day I was over visiting Diane, and this gal came up, and she grabbed me by the arm. She goes, are you Diane's sister? And I said, yes. And she goes, well, I am so upset Diane has kicked off the bus. And I says, well, I am too. I wanted to sign a petition, but my husband said that we would be putting Abdon at risk by doing so, so he wouldn't let me. And she goes, I want to do it then. And I said, okay. And she goes, but I don't have a typewriter. Will you type something up and put it under my door? And I said, I shall. So I went home, and I typed it up, and I stuck it under her door the next day, a couple of days later, she called me back and she goes, Diane's back on the bus. And I said, well, that's wonderful. She goes, I got a bunch of people to sign the petition and I marched into the manager's office and I said, we want Diane back on the bus. And I just, so I ended up talking to this lady for hours and, and she was just, and I said, I just love your spunk. I want to be you when I'm your age. And she goes, well, you have to be spunky to get to my age. And I says, well, how old are you? And she goes, 96. <laughs> oh, but just a as smart as a whip, you know, but they were so protective of her. And um, that was the beginning of their love story, and and he was there until she died. Oh. You know, it's uh, my mom, um, through her twists and turns, actually um, fell in love with somebody. And I didn't know who it was, and she would just tell me about this man. And, and I couldn't figure out who this man was. She lived in a nursing home. And I looked, and I looked, and I scurried, and I, I, just, I was so excited because she was like a 15-year-old. She was just all giddy, and her eyes were sparkling, and she was just mm-hmm. she was so in love. She was just so happy. And um, one day, I, I finally went up to the nurse. It was about two weeks, and I thought, 
I'm gonna I'm just gonna go ask the nurse who this is. And she said, Well, do you have a minute? And she looked really serious. And I said, Yeah, and she says, um, it's it's not a man. It's Mary Ellis. <laughs> it's, oh, and you're the, kidding. The, and the woman <laughs> kinda looked like a man. I mean she was just kind oh. of blocky. And um and my but my mom was so happy. She was so happy, and she would tell me how they would sit on the bench and they would hold hands and they would go for walks at the sunset. And um, she was just so peaceful and so joyous. And and um, and then one day I came to the nursing home, and I never said anything about you know to my mom that I knew it was a woman, you know. And I'd say you know what's the, what's his name, you know. And she would describe him, um, you know, as this you know gorgeous man with gray hair and these beautiful blue eyes and stuff and and how gentle and kind he was and and um and she's like I can't, I can't remember his name I've got Alzheimer's she'd say and oh. um, and then one day I came and my mom was sitting on the front bench to the nursing home and she was so mad and so angry and she had her arms crossed and she was so tight and just beat red in face and I said, Mom, what's wrong? I don't want to talk about it. I said, Mom, what, uh, something happened. You need to tell me. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. And all of a sudden, Mary Ellis walked by her, and my mom's eyes just shot daggers at this woman. Just shot oh. daggers. And Mary Ellis, you could just see her cringe, and she you know, kind of moved away. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And so I, I sat with my mom quietly for a while and then um, finally got her to open up. And she, she, I said, well, are you still seeing, you know, this man, you know? And and she said, no, we broke up. And I said, well, why? I, I, I don't want to talk about it. And she just wouldn't talk about it. My mom, even though her memory was extremely poor, my mom held on to that anger for two or three months. Mm-hmm. And and I felt so bad not only for her but I felt bad for Mary Ellis and I to this day feel really strongly that someone told my mom her boyfriend was oh. a woman. Oh, probably. You know, probably. and my mom my mom was brought up Catholic, you know, and and even though she changed to Lutheran, um that wouldn't have sat well with her. No. And, I was born and raised Lutheran, I know. <laughs> and and I just I I to this day, I you know, I hope I don't find out who who told her because I probably will yeah. go off on them because I don't think anybody had that right to to judge my no. mom and to take her happiness. She was no. she was the happiest I had seen her in years and years and years. I mean, and to to see that switch from this complete innocent lovely joy to downright anger and disgust you know, and I, then I when just, you want her memory not to remember stuff like that, she she could remember that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. Like, why why do you pick that one? You know, but <laughs> but I think like with everything, um, you know, the stronger our emotions are tied to a memory, the longer they last. You know, just like with with music, people go, how can we remember all that stuff? Well, it's it's tied to you know. Um, huge, huge emotional stance within us, and um, and so, but I just I wanted to to hear your story and and to have you share that with our audience because I think, 
you know, this stuff um, happens. And, you know, mm-hmm. just because a person has dementia uh, doesn't mean that they um, should lose their right to love and be loved. No, and and Diane had been married twice before and had given up on men. I mean, she didn't want mm-hmm. anything to do with men anymore. And to see her fall madly, she said she loved him more than she ever did any other man. And it was just such oh. a joy. And it was it was fun for us because my dad had just gotten married at 80 or 78 and I had just got married for the first time at 51 and you know my life had been so consumed for so many years taking care of Diane and the minute both of us got married we got married about two months apart Abdon came into her life and she was in love too so it was like all the Farleys were in love at the same time so it was it was just amazing but it he was able to free our time up a little bit you know so we could you know participate in our marriages a little bit more, you know, while he would sure. kidnap her for weekends. And it became quite a scandal, and we would sneak her out, and they would go spend weekends together, and it was just so fun. And and she just got such a kick out of the fact that it was kind of naughty. Scandalous. Her eyes would just light up. I'd go on Friday nights, and I'd pack her suitcase, and we'd sneak her down the back stairs, and I would drive over to the the corner car wash, and I would, you know, meet half done there and turn her over, and she just thought that was so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, what the heck, you know, at that point in their life, you got to have fun, you know, and I think that's why she was able to fall in love. We just showered her with love. I mean, everybody in our family is very, very loving, and and, you know, she always felt and experienced love going through all of this. Um, and I think that's what opened up her heart to it finally, too. You know, mm-hmm. um, it had sure helped everybody through this. And I do hear a lot of stories, like your mother's, that this happens quite often. I think their guard has dropped, and they mm-hmm. allow love in, and it's the most wonderful healer. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it's just so beautiful because it's so innocent and it's just so basic. And granted, mm-hmm. you know, I when I had heard about this at first, I was worried, um, you know, because I I couldn't find this man on the floor, and I thought, who is it? And then then I started getting worried, thinking, oh gosh, is it, you know, is it someone coming to visit? And you know, is my mom being taken advantage of? Because you don't want that to happen. Or right, a lot of right. people didn't. Even know that my mom had dementia because her social skills were so good and so I mean she could hide a lot from from right. somebody because she would sit by the front door and she would greet everybody and and she was kind of like the the Walmart greeter at the nursing home you know <laughs> <laughs> and that was just kind of her role and who she was but you know so you you come out and you you want to make sure that they're protected and um and that they're safe needless to say Oh, sure, that was our biggest fear, too. But, you know, the more mm-hmm. I got to know this man and everybody at the place knew him. And I, believe me, I talked to a lot of people and just realized he was just an angel. I mean, he was mm-hmm. really not from this planet. He was just an angel of a man that fell madly in love. So, I mean, I totally oh. trusted him. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, um, and that's nice that you were open to that as a family and, and that you were, you know, willing to allow your sister to still have that as part of her life, you know, mm-hmm. where some people are just so scared of the whole sexuality and, you know, you know, everything that can that can come into be with that. And um, instead of just, you know, keeping it simple. 
And Abdon had been married before, too, with all his children. And he says, but he was still madly in love with Diane. I mean, he still carries her picture around. He's still, all these years later, we still keep in touch. We still have lunch. Uh-huh. And he's still, it's still the love of his life, you know. Mm-hmm. So even with Alzheimer's, I said, you know, it always kind of broke my heart that he never got to know the real her because Diane was a hoot. I mean, mm-hmm. She was feisty, she was funny, she was, you know, the class clown. She always had, I mean, she's just a dry wit. And um, But, you know, by the time he met her, she had none of that. And he still fell madly in love with her. And I says, you know, it's great because my husband, nor my dad's wife, nor Abdon, none of them got to know Diane before this happened. And it was just kind of sad. I mean, she became a completely different person, a very sweet, loving person, but... You know, she'd lost the ability to communicate mm-hmm. um, for the most part by the time she met most of the family members, the new family members. So, But, wow. you know, another thing that we, we were going to talk about, too, is um, the support groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is, like, the number one important thing that you can do. And when Diane was diagnosed, again, at 49 or 50 years old, um, we got involved with the local San Diego Alzheimer's support group, and they wanted her to go to an out-and-about. Um, for people out there that don't know what that is, it's one day a week. They pick up all of the um, Alzheimer's people, and they take them on a little adventure. And, you know, they took them to great places, you know, museums or factories or the zoo or behind the scenes at the Old Globe Theater. I mean, all kinds of fun things. But anyway, they... Um, had this group already in existence, and I sent Diane once, and of course they were all, you know, 70 and 80 years old. And I asked how it was, and she says, well, I don't really feel comfortable, because she could still communicate back then. I don't really feel comfortable with all of these people. And so when they called to see if Diane was going to go the next week, I kind of, you know, using her words, I said she didn't really want to hang out with a bunch of old people. I jokingly said... If you ever start an early onset support group, let me know for younger people. And sure enough, Anna King called me back within two weeks and said, I have six people in their 50s. And I said, let's Mm -hmm. do it. So we started the first early onset support group here. And it was great because it was um, three women and three men, and they all were between 50 and 60, And it was great because my dad and I would go, you know, every week with Diane, and they'd put all of the Alzheimer's people in one room and all of the caretakers in the other. And we were the only ones that, you know, weren't were just Diane's siblings. The others were all spouses. Mm -hmm. So we would all get to talk about everything that was going on in our lives and share information and share what we were doing. And then the Alzheimer's people, at this point, when they could still talk, you know, would communicate and go through their frustrations. I mean, they would have somebody in there leading their, their you know, conversations as well. But it became such an important thing for us because Diane was still living alone at this point. And we thought she was doing fine. As you say, they are very good at putting on fronts. They're very good at hiding everything because they don't want to lose their independence. And if it wasn't for this support group, I probably would have let Diane live a lot longer by herself and be totally oblivious and ignorant of what was going on. But there was a gal in the group that was Diane's age. You know, she was diagnosed about the same time. They even reminded me of of each other. She was a school teacher, and her husband, Michael, and I would keep in constant contact. 
you know, we would talk at the meetings, but we would also email all the time. And he'd email me and say, well, you know, my wife isn't able to shower herself anymore. You may be able to watch, you might want to watch over Diane. And I found she can't cook for herself anymore, so you may be able to watch, want to, you know, check in with Diane on that. So I would go over on a Saturday morning and I would tell Diane, well, I didn't have a chance to have breakfast. Will you cook me a little breakfast? And she would just look at me with these big blue eyes and just a blank stare. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, my gosh. She forgot how to use a microwave. She forgot how to cook. You know, that's why every time I'd buy groceries, there's still food in the the refrigerator when I came back the next week. They forget hunger. They forget how to cook. They forget how to take care of themselves. So it was at that point I realized, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to do something. And, you know, probably a little denial on my part because if I felt, you know, that I put her in, I mean, I just, I didn't want to to go that next step and put her in a home at her age, you know, in her early 50s. It just broke my heart, but we realized, and she told me, and I asked her, she said, okay, I'm ready. So she knew. She was, you know, scaring herself, I think. Um, She'd lost a lot of weight. So, again, if it wasn't for the support group and me talking to Michael all the time and him watching his wife and telling me what to be looking out for, I would have been oblivious to a lot of things. I'm sure it would have come to me sooner or later. But, um, And again, it's also you know, being able to understand what other people are going through so you don't feel alone. Um, and, and, and you're not by yourself. I mean, this is so, so devastating for the caretakers that you need to talk to people. You need to be able to communicate with others that are going through this at the same time so you don't feel alone or it can just eat you up. Um, but again, it's important to get them in the out and about. It gives them a little bit, the caregivers a little bit of me time, you know, a few hours, you know, even once a week that you can go and, and be by yourself and take care of things that you need to be doing. And you say it's the hardest thing in the world to watch your loved ones disappear, you know, but if you have a support group to talk to that are going through the same things. I mean, I still talk to our people. We've only got one gal left, and that was Diane's friend. You know, everybody else has gone out of the group. Everybody was taken early, which I always say are the lucky ones. One of them is still with us, and and um, we've all kept in touch. They were at Diane's celebration of life when she left us, and, and um, just a wonderful group of people. But, you know, you got to do it. you got to connect with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's very, very, very important. I stopped going to uh, support groups myself. Um, I didn't do a lot of it, but uh, and then it was, oh, gosh. I, we were kind of in the thick of things. I hadn't gone in years and years and years, and, and I went to hear a speaker, and they posed just one question to me that made me say, I, I need to go again, <laughs> you know, um, and I didn't yeah. even know that I needed that. I just, I, it was kind of serendipity that I landed there. And I went for, gosh, I bet about another year. And I learned so much and found so much comfort, you know. Um, so it's it's important to have those conversations. It's important to take care of, of yourself. Um, right. As a, I, a I t- truthfully have not gone since Diane passed. Mm-hmm. But she... I think when you're going through it, you definitely need to participate in it. I think sitting around and writing the book for six years was very cathartic for me, and um, that's probably what helped me through it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel, you know, I cried for a year after Diane died. I mean, it took me two years before I could even start on the book again after she died. 
And, you know, that's important, too. You've got to grieve. You've got to get it out. You've got to share it. But I think, you know, for me to sit down and tell the story and for me to be able to laugh all over again and, and you know, for her for her stories to come through, to to understand even though you're going through this with people, you know, you still got to find love. you still got to find happiness. you still got to find laughter through all of this. In fact, I've had friends for years that have told me stories of their parents that have gone through Alzheimer's and before you know this happened to my sister. And I would always say, oh, my gosh, these are such funny stories. You should write them down and just write a comedy book. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Yep. And she never did. But, you know, I can I can see. I think somebody has done that. But, you know, she said she got her mother a puppy for Christmas. And so for, you know, a present she had sent the her mom a, a new dog collar for the dog and her mom wrote her back a very nice thank you note thank you so much for the new belt but it's very small i don't think i can use it maybe you could get me a bigger size but i mean you know not knowing that it was a dog collar she thought it was a belt for her but the funny stories you know and you do have to be able to just laugh you know mm-hmm. you have to let loose and laugh i mean our family has always been one that laughs we make fun of each other we we poke fun and you know we we enjoy life and you know that stopped for a little while, but I realized you've got to continue that. Yeah, de- definitely, definitely. What can you tell us? Um, what was the most important part of giving care to you? What did what really resonated with you? Oh gosh, you know, just that she was my best friend, and you know, it gave me. I've always. You know, everybody in our family has always been very healthy. I knew nothing about, I knew, you know, never been in the hospital, knew nothing about doctors, really didn't like doctors, um, didn't trust doctors. I, uh, and that's how this whole book starts out and my whole adventure starts out. And and I probably wasn't very nice to a lot of these doctors because I was, you know, I went in very tongue-in-cheek, like, you know, tell me what's wrong, but I don't really think you're going to be able to help me out. It made me realize how important it is to release. You've got to be your advocate, but you've got to believe once in a while in people, too. Um, And you've got to believe in in miracles, you know. You've got to just do everything you can day by day. Um, Find your inner strength. Like I say, when I found out that I had to go in and, and sign her up for short-term disability, then long-term disability, then Social Security disability, and then all of this, I mean, piles and piles and piles of paperwork. You find a person inside you that you didn't know existed um, to go and find homes. I mean, I remember my last class and my design class was we had to go design an Alzheimer's Center, coincidentally enough, and I designed this beautiful Alzheimer's Center for my final project to get my bachelor's degree. But for me to walk into that center, oh, it was excruciating. I hated hospitals. I wasn't comfortable around old people. I wasn't comfortable around anything to do with Alzheimer's. But boy, you know, after you experience it yourself, you know, you have to learn to embrace all of this. And I, I found an inner strength in myself that I came in and, and you know, went full force and was able to be her advocate and get her through all of this and, and you find a strength you didn't ever, ever think you could have. I guess that's what I would have to say is I found an inner strength in myself that I I, I never, ever expected to be able to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is 
kind of incredible, isn't it? You you don't, uh, I guess none of us go into something like that thinking it's going to make us stronger. <laughs> we just kind of walk into no. it. Oh my gosh, we're going to be beat up, you know, but um, there really, there really are gifts in the journey um, that can be, that can be so helpful for us. And for me now, I would say, you know, to write this book, which was extraordinary, you know, from my background, and to be able to get this out and it's gotten great accolades. I've had so many people call and say, oh my gosh, this has helped so much you know, in helping us guide us through. Um, I mean, that to me is such a huge joy if I can help other families go through what we already went through and help them step by step of what they need to do and, and you know, not be so scared. If I can do it, anybody can mm-hmm. do it is the way I look at it. And, and you know, to, to hold their hand through this process. Yep. And that was the whole reason for this. So hopefully it will be a lot of help for people. Yeah, I I definitely think uh I definitely think that it will be. And um people can reach you at uh com, and from there they can they can get the book as well. I I think it it'll be an enjoyable, enlightening read. Um all we need is a happy ending. And isn't that what we all want, you know? And just the spelling on that, just because it is unusual, my mm-hmm. name is spelled R-E-N-A-E, which is a little mm-hmm. different. So, um, yeah, you can, and it's on Amazon, And um, but yeah, the easiest way is just to get on my website, and you can buy it there. Well, wonderful. Well, again, I thank you so much for being with us today. It was uh, it was oh. a great having the conversation, and I, I'm always amazed at how fast the time flies here. But um, oh, Lori, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And again, I know that you just lost your mother, so my heart goes out to you as well. But they're up there together, probably having a good old time. I know, and I I still feel Mom's presence really close to me, which is is very nice. In fact, um, after she died, that that song, Happy, that went viral, was like screaming in my head, and it was really weird because the week she was sick, everybody started sending this back and forth in our family and friends, and... And so then when mom died, it was it was almost, it was so loud. It was like the band was playing in my bedroom for like two oh, nights straight. Great. And I, I, I couldn't sleep. And then the third night I said, okay, I get you're happy, mom. I get you're free <laughs> and you're up there dancing, but I got to get some sleep. And so <sighs> the third so the third night, I was able to sleep really pretty good, but there were a couple of times where it was almost like somebody opened the door to where the band was playing, and I could hear it, but it wasn't so loud. And then the door shut again, and it was, it was hilarious. So I, I know that she's, she's in a good spot and is doing well, and um, you know we'll just always be close. You know that's yeah. That doesn't and they say away. if you dream of. If you dream about people, which Diane is in my dreams at least a couple times a week, that means that mm-hmm. that's their way of coming in and showing you a sign. Because I was always saying, I want a sign, I want a sign. And they say, if you if they're in your dreams. And she's, you know, sometimes she's the feisty, funny little character in my dreams, and sometimes she has Alzheimer's. But most of the time it's us going up and getting into trouble and, you know, just like the uh-huh. old days. And I dream about that a lot. So that's what I'm going to oh. put out to you. If she... If, if, if you dream about her, that's her way of connecting with you. Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. Well, you have a wonderful week. And again, thank you for sharing your story with us. And again, I would encourage people to to go um, go check out this book. You know, go get, go go buy it. All we need is a happy ending. Thank you so much for being with us today, Renee. Lori, my pleasure. Thank you. Yep. Bye now. Bye. And don't forget to uh, check out the book Leaving Tinkertown by Tanya Ward Goodman. Another, I think, fantastic story that will leave you um, inspired and and uplifted in terms of of signs. If you uh, have a chance, um, again, please like this, share this link, and go to Alzheimer's. alzheimerspeaks.com and if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing and liking us there as well we have lots of great information again it's our purpose and passion to get people just to have the conversation to remove the fear and pull us together as one um if you're looking for an, a trial a clinical trial go to the alzheimer's team on facebook or al- the alzheimerstudies.com And don't forget about the Alzheimer's Disease International Organization, where you can find any Alzheimer's association around the world, the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation, which does a lot of holistic things. If you're interested in learning more about becoming dementia-friendly, go to our site and to the About tab. You'll find information about the Purple Angel. You'll find information about the Memory Cafes, our Dementia Chat webinars, which are all free. Um, We are here to help you and um, again if you think you might be a great guest give me a jingle just drop me a line we'll talk soon bye now Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.